Now, if you would stand with me in reverence for God's word, we're going to read John 4, 1 through 26, um, talking about the woman at the well. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although he himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did his, as did his sons and from his and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of the water of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not yours, is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is in the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who he was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat and I'll pray for us. Father, we are grateful for this chance to come and look at this, this story of this woman's life, but also how it Jesus places himself in this moment to reveal himself to us. Lord, so often we read these passages and we look at them as history, but Lord, they are true, or they are true. We look at them as just stories in history, but they are true, rather. And uh, I pray today that you give us a deeper faith, a greater understanding, and a recognition of, of who we are in relationship to Christ, Lord, and provide us with faith or greater faith. Lord, please remove doubt and help us to to see the words that John has written for us today to be the moments of our transformation and conversion. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Lord, we're grateful for your spirit that guides us and brings about the truth in these scriptures. It's in your son's name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So in Luke 27, after Jesus has 
risen from the dead, he is said to take time to explain or to teach to his disciples all the Old Testament scriptures, and he does this to show them or to teach them that everything in there, everything from the beginning with Moses all the way through the prophets, everything that happened points to him. Everything in the Old Testament points to him. What he was showing them was at the heart of God's word, at the heart even of the Old Covenant, is the hope of the Messiah. Okay, He wanted them to understand that. From Genesis to Malachi, all the Hebrew scriptures repeatedly proclaim that the Savior is coming. He is coming. And because of that, because of that truth that is, that is laid through all of the Old Testament scriptures, generations upon generations longed for that promise to come true. They longed for the promise of that reality to actually come to fruition. And it's just like how we feel about our own Lord's return. It's just like how we feel about Christ and his second coming as we learn more and more about Christ, as we learn more and more about our Messiah, we grow in hopeful expectations for that day when Jesus will come again and he will bring heaven with him along with everybody else who's in it. It is a glorious moment that we, that we long for. He brings heaven and the people along with him. And Israel waited eagerly as well for the Messiah to come, and one day he did, but the unthinkable happened. They rejected him. This long-awaited Messiah actually came, but the unthinkable inevitably happened. They rejected him, and they rejected him because their religious hearts refused to accept Jesus for who he is. They didn't like how he actually revealed himself. As Jesus proved to his disciples and to us, there's no lack of evidence in the Old Testament. The amount of proof and prophecy that's there is overwhelmingly convincing that Jesus is actually the one who fulfills all those things. And John, our writer of this gospel, understood these facts, and he tells us, this is why I wrote down this truth for you, for us, so that we might believe in Jesus, who is the Christ, because of who he is. Really, not because of what he does for us, but because he is who he says that he is. Our faith is based on Christ, not based on what we get ourselves as well. He, it, it's why he wrote down for us this interaction that we have today. It's why he wrote down this interaction with Jesus and this Samaritan woman. But although this story is compelling, honestly, it's one of my favorites in this gospel. There is so much there. It was so difficult to write this sermon. There's so much information. We could do five or six sermons out of this passage. It's truly one of my favorites, but as we walk our way through this narration, as we learn more and more about this woman's conversion and and how or what this rescue means for her, we need to see that her salvation is not the point of the story. As wonderful as it is, her salvation is not the point of the story. The central truth of what's being proclaimed is that Jesus Christ says that he's the Messiah. He is the focal point of the passage and all the scriptures. In fact, it's here for the very first time in his entire earthly ministry so far that he reveals that he is the long-awaited Messiah, and he tells it to the most unlikely of people. He tells it to the most unlikely person that we might choose to think about it. He doesn't go and, and tell the religious elite 
He doesn't choose to go and tell some, uh, some, some well-known business executive like we might because either of those could have helped him in his mission, in accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish by proclaiming this truth to all the people. He tells a non-Jewish woman of shameful character, one who most likely was treated and lived as an outcast among her people. He tells for the first time one of the most unlikely people in Scripture. So let's look at our text today. We start with verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his sons. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And then John tells us it was about the sixth hour. You remember last week that John the Baptist's disciples also took notice of Jesus' popularity. They took notice of what Jesus was doing and how people were flocking to him, and some questions about rivalry also began to, be, uh, to rise up amongst them. So John the Baptist once again pointed out the fact that everything that he did was to point to him, was to point to Jesus. And his words were and are simple for us to understand. They're also applicable for all believers. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. As well, those Pharisees who were watching John and Jesus, they were stirring. So in order to prevent some sort of public rivalry, some sort of crazy competition, Jesus left and began to travel north towards Galilee. Now in verse 4, John wrote that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And that verse is actually quite important for us. It's important for us because even though the way through Samaria was the fastest route. It was not the common way that the Jewish people would travel. When you would go from Jerusalem to Galilee, it would in fact, well, I'm going your way, it would go kind of right up the middle, but kind of arc to the, to the right. But the Jewish people would take this long route all the way around. Proud Jews would simply avoid traveling through the area of Samaria, even if it meant taking this longer route and, and suffering through crossing the Jordan multiple times. That's quite dangerous for them. So they would cross the Jordan multiple times, willingly enduring what they considered lesser evils. But Jesus, John says, was compelled to go through Samaria. He was compelled to go this way. Now, two things could have explained Jesus' reasoning. Two things, really, that we could think of that this is why Jesus had to go. One, he was late. He was running out of time, right? Or two, he was aware of this divine appointment that he had with this woman at the well, right? Obviously, the narrative points us to believe that it's the second. Therefore, on this trip, Jesus stopped at this town called Sychar in Samaria, and he chose to rest at a very particular place called Jacob's Well, which, according to Wikipedia, is still there, which is pretty cool. Now, there's a lot that goes into the history of this well, and we're not going to get into that, but this place does help us identify why Samaritans worshipped God in this area and in the way that they did. You see, this was their holy place. This was the area of their holy place. And this place was called Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. 
Right? These people held to parts of Scripture, and they worshipped what they thought was God, but, or, or was the, 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 the traditional Hebrew God, but their holy place became Mount Gerizim and not Jerusalem. And there's evidence for this, and it gets actually traced all the way back to um, what happens in the division of the kingdom of Israel with uh, King David's son Solomon as he reigned as king. But what happened eventually to that northern kingdom that was divided, there was a northern and a southern kingdom, part of the kingdom. What eventually happened to that northern part of the kingdom was that it was conquered by the Assyrians and inevitably Jewish people were deported and Gentile people or pagan people were imported. Jewish people eventually got deported and pagan people were imported. Therefore, this mixture of Jews and Gentiles became the people of Samaria. And not surprisingly, this mixture of people brought in a mixture of religious beliefs. And the Samaritan people began to listen. The Samaritans then eventually, even though it might have been a slow fade, decided to eliminate the prophets and the Psalms from God's word. What they chose to do was only to hold to the first five books of the Bible and specifically reject anything that had to do with Jerusalem. They decided to, to edit out the things that God had revealed and only hold to the five books of the Bible. Now, maybe you can see why there's such hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans and why they each had this, this, this sort of rivalry that they had with each other. So, Back to the story, Jesus takes this rest at the well because he was weary from his trip. This shows his humanness within his incarnation. He wasn't simply just this spiritual body that seemed physical. No, he was 100% God and 100% man. And as he rested, this woman approaches him. This woman approaches the well while Jesus is lounging at the well and Jesus tells her, to give me a drink. Now, this shocks the woman. This shocks her, right? Apparently, as she walked up, she had already identified Jesus as a Jew, and she's aware as a Samaritan that Jews and Samaritans don't often engage with one another, and not just that, she's this lone woman, and culturally, it was improper for a man to speak to a woman in public, even their wives. We think that's crazy, but that was how the culture was. Now, this is incredibly important for us to grasp because Christianity is at times improperly stereotyped by the world as misogynistic. It's important for us to understand what Jesus is doing with this woman, this lone woman, who he's not supposed to be talking to because there's, they, they, they look at women as second-class citizens. It's important for us to recognize what's actually happening because Christianity is often improperly stereotyped as misogynistic, specifically with the biblical definition of complementarianism. Now, if you don't know what that means, complementarianism, I would love to explain it to you. I'd love to get coffee or lunch. Uh, you can talk to your community group leaders. You can ask them to describe all that. But it's important for us to understand, again, because Jesus and Christianity have always held to the belief and practice that women and men are on the level of equal worth and dignity. There is no class of citizen when it comes to Christianity. Both men and women are equal in worth and dignity. So again, unconcerned, Jesus asked this woman for water. Unconcerned, Jesus asked this woman for water. The woman, of course, like I said, was taken back by this action, and she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman from Samaria, for a drink of water? 
Jesus responds to her question like he did back with Nicodemus. He answers her by making a very thought-provoking statement. He says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water in the Old Testament was this metaphor for spiritual cleansing and for new life, which comes only at salvation through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 36, 9, remember this is what they took out, says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So the Samaritan woman misses the point. She says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it from, from himself, or drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is greater than Jacob, right? All of Jacob's life and works pointed to Christ, but her natural skepticism is understandable because she doesn't quite yet know who Jesus actually is. She doesn't actually know who this man is at this moment. And with patience, Jesus answers her. He says, in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's saying anyone who looks to the elements of this world will never fully be satisfied. That's something that we can ring true with. Anyone who looks to the elements of this world will never be fully satisfied. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up for eternal life. And verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. Jesus' depiction of this overflowing water within a person is meant to show us that living, this, this living water that only he can provide is alive and it's dynamic, it's energetic, it's powerful, and it not only quenches our desire for today, but it so incredibly seems to pour out of our soul, of this individual's soul as it continues to nurture him day by day, year after year. It just pours out of us in abundance. Jesus was declaring this spiritual reality of what he gives us through faith. This is what he gives us through faith. This is the living water that is provided for us by faith. And he gives us, he is the one who gives us peace and hope and love, not just to meet our needs for today, but in a measure that will satisfy our souls for eternity. This is what Jesus is proclaiming to this woman He's telling her, this is what I'm able to provide you with. Are you burdened today? Are you burdened by something in your life that you just aren't satisfied? Christ is able to satisfy you, not just today, but forever. Her response is this. You can, you can just hear how thirsty her soul is. She says, give me this water. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again. This woman wants what Jesus offers. She wants it. She heard him. She, she wants what Jesus offers. But who is this woman? 
who is this woman? What, we can try to understand. And why was she there at the well when Jesus was? Well, we find out in verse 17 and 18 that this woman has five husbands. And the one that she's with currently is not her husband. I don't know if that means that they weren't married or if he was in fact married to someone else, but the point is that Jesus knows and she knows that she hasn't stopped searching for happiness or contentment or peace or purpose, even though she continues to find disappointment and shame in the arms of man after man after man. He says, sir, give me this water so my soul can be quenched. Give me what you possess so my soul can be quenched. I want to ask today, what sort, of, what sort of dark and dead ends do you continue to go down in order to find satisfaction? What sort of roads do you continue down knowing that they're simply darkened to find satisfaction for your soul? What are you searching for? Earlier, John says that Jesus arrived at the well at the sixth hour of the day. This would have made it high noon. As we know, it's the middle of the day. It's the hottest part of the day. And culturally, it was typically the woman's responsibility to go and fetch the water for her family. And most of the women would go in the early part of the morning or in the late evening to avoid that sweltering heat. But this woman, who Jesus was talking with, she ventured there at the hottest moment of the day. It would be exceedingly more difficult. She did this because she expected that nobody else would have been there. She put forth this effort because she expected that she could do this alone, that she wouldn't be seen. You can imagine how this woman with multiple husbands and currently living with someone else's could have been labeled a harlot with her people. She was known as this woman who was not just using, abusing, or getting abused and getting used, but she was also taking husbands. We can see how she could have been labeled a harlot with her people. Again, it seemed that she was searching for meaning and comfort in the arms of multiple men, and this didn't seem to be a secret from those who knew her. Therefore, she probably lived in shame. Which brings to like the second part of this desperate request for living water. First she says, give it to me so I won't thirst. And then she says, so I don't have to come here again. So I don't have to ever return to this well alone. Imagine how this woman must have felt. It wasn't just her sin that haunted her. She walked in disgrace among her people as she moved about the city in order just to simply go to this well. Imagine, just as she had to get up and move through the city in order to go to this well, she would have had to endure whispers. She would have had to endure snide comments and laughter, possibly faces of disgust from other women. She says, give me this water. Give me this kind of water so I don't have to feel condemned any longer. Now we know what Jesus has to offer, but we need to be honest about this moment. We know the whole gospel. We are blessed to be on this side of the cross. We understand this truth. We've heard it proclaimed. Even if you're not a Christian, you cannot say that you haven't heard the gospel preached here. 
We know what Jesus offers, but we have to be honest about this moment. This woman wasn't searching for God's forgiveness. She was simply searching for relief from her guilt. Okay? It's comforting for us to say that our lost friends are searching for truth or they're trying to find their way in the world, but that's not what the Bible teaches us. It's comforting to say, yeah, my friend, he's just seeking truth and he's trying to wrestle with Jesus. It's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.11, no one searches for God. We talked about how you don't understand the heavenly things because you were not born from above. No one searches for God without the Holy Spirit within them. That's the reality. That is what the gospel is telling us. We must be born again in order to understand this truth. We are all like the Samaritan woman without Jesus Christ. We're all like this woman without Jesus. We're all looking. The whole world is looking for how we can fulfill our souls and, and, and we attempt to use all sorts of different vices. We're all looking for that same fulfillment. We're looking for that type of relief. And truthfully, as we all sit here and as I stand here speaking, we all use other vices to work for that fulfillment. But the only thing that will truly and eternally satisfy it is the living Christ. It's only the living Christ. He is alive. He has been resurrected. That's what proves all of this to be true. Like the world, we don't have to make this foolish assumption. Like the world, this woman wasn't unintelligent. She was wise. She wasn't unintelligent. When Jesus addressed her sin, even though he told it to her perfectly, she tries to divert the conversation away from herself and away from her sin. She says in verse 16, or I'll start in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right by saying, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, but or what you have said is true. Here, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Here's the switch. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain. But you say that Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Not at all what Jesus is talking about. This, this is the debate that's been going on since, like I said, from the beginning of the sermons, goes all the way back to Solomon. So Jesus quickly answers it, but he doesn't take the bait. He addresses it, but he doesn't take the bait. He says in verse 21, Woman, or madam, we learned about that. This is a, a, a way of respect. Woman, or madam, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He wasn't saying that it doesn't matter how you worship God. He was saying that there is a wrong way and there is a right way. He was telling her that you don't have this truth. The Jews have this truth. You, madam, as in the Samaritans, are without knowledge because you only come under part of God's word. Remember, they only use five books of the Bible. While we, as in the Jews, we can worship properly because we know fully what God has revealed, and that is why salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here, right, Jesus when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Salvation is from the Jews, but the hour has come because of Jesus that we can now worship the Father even more fully as we can now do it in spirit and truth. We have been provided the Holy Spirit to do this in spirit and truth. And this can be confusing because we often talk about the Holy Spirit when we discuss our worship, but here Jesus is not referencing him. He's not referencing the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that proper worship has two elements. There's two elements. One, proper worship is eternal and not just external, not just simply external. It's not about conformity. It's not about following rituals. It's meant to be worship that pours out of our heart. It's our heart. It's our soul. It's our being that that drives us and moves us in our life. And two, proper worship is when we follow the truth. It must be internal, and then it must, we must also follow the truth. The Jewish people had the truth, but they rejected it and focused on self-centered worship. In order for our hearts to worship properly, we have to work at Bible consistency, about being consistent with the Word and what God teaches in that Word, and we must be focused on Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate Word. So two elements, spirit and truth. Your heart, your soul, your being, must, it must come from within. It is about your heart, not your actions. And then two, we must follow after truth. And then suddenly, after Jesus says this, suddenly this woman is taken back. She's taken back because like many who waited for the, this Messiah to come, she too believed that one day he would arrive and she knew that he would be able to reveal the things of our hearts. So she says to Jesus, verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Her body must have just been electrified in that moment just electrified. The hair must have, every single hair on her body must have stood on end. This man who she most likely approached with great caution, this man who just asked her for a drink of water moments ago, this man who spoke so profoundly into the intimate details and realities of our life, this man just made the pronouncement that he is the promised Messiah. What must now change in this woman's life with this knowledge? What must must change for this woman in her life because of what she now knows? What has happened to you? How have you changed if you know this knowledge? You know this truth. What about your life has changed? Jesus, throughout this entire interaction, has calmly worked to arouse this woman's mind and stir her emotion, but he has also touched her conscience. Warren Wiersbe says that there can be no conversion without conviction. Therefore, Jesus focused her to face and admit her sin. She had to face and admit her sin in order to have what he offered, in order to have what would quench her thirst. Next week, we're going to get to see what this means for her. Next week, we're going to learn what's changed in her from how she used to hide and how she used to slip in and out of town as she was ashamed to be seen to now how she will then go with great boldness to share the truth of the Messiah with all of her people. 
It is a glorious transformation. It is a, a wonderful thing because Christ changes us from the inside. He literally gives, makes, he cha- transforms our heart of stone, of selfishness, into a heart of flesh where we can receive the truth and we can recognize Jesus Christ for who he actually is. So far in John's gospel, he has clearly shown us that there is a new sacrifice in the Lamb, there's a new type of temple in Christ, there's a new kind of birth through the Holy Spirit, and today there's new living water available for you and for me that promises to quench our thirst for eternity. That is the promise of the gospel. That is the promise of the cross. That's why we sing Maranatha. If you would, pray with me, please. Father, we love you and thank you. Father, help us to respond. Lord, give us confidence. Give us a a boldness to turn from the things of our life, to turn from the darkened roads that only lead to dead end, that we search and search and search in that blackened cul-de-sac for satisfaction. Give us the strength to turn and move towards the light, Lord. Let us be a people who walk with one another, who carry burdens with one another, who recognize that who Jesus is changes everything. Give us a greater faith and understanding, Lord. Thank you for your spirit. Convict us and convert us. In Jesus' name, amen.